This event that happened recently, in fact, on the 5th of October this year, a Friday evening, probably changed my appreciation of conceptual art. For those who missed it, it didn't take place in an art studio, but in an auction house at Sotheby's in London. And it featured a painting known as Girl with a Balloon that was by the England-based um, anonymous street artist that goes by the name Banksy. And uh, as part of his stunt, as this painting of his was being sold for over one million sterling, it began to slide down in the canvas, uh, in the frame, and it was shredded. And uh, it was then renamed by the artist, Love is in the Bin. It has three features, I think, that um, attract our attention. First of all, something happened that to most people at least was not seemingly in the original plan, known only to the artist. And secondly, the act of destruction was transformed into something creative. And it was, in fact, the creation of a new piece of art. And as a result of it going through that process of destruction and creation, it has actually now an enhanced value. It's probably the most topically famous piece of art in the world just now. And it's reckoned that its value has doubled to about two million pounds. I think we can probably relate in our lives to things happening that we didn't see coming, that were unexpected, that we hadn't budgeted for in our plans, and at the time they impact us very negatively. And yet, in retrospect and with hindsight, and by the help of God perhaps, we can look back and we can actually come to appreciate them and even value them. The Bible helps us to go through that process when things like this happen in our lives. And in fact, if you think of the overall story, the headline story of the Bible, those are the features that it takes. Something happened near the beginning that did not appear to us to be in God's original plan. Death, through sin, through the one man, intruded into God's perfect, pristine creation. Death was disastrous. It was destructive. It's judgmental. The wages of sin is death. But it was also a blessing in disguise. How so? Because it made possible that the second person of the Trinity, coming into humanity, could taste death for all of us and obtain for us, through his death, untold blessing with Christ forever and ever. And who can put a value on that? And the refrain, as we read through Romans chapter 5, and it's mentioned in Hebrews 9 as well, is much more. 
God is much more advantaged through all that has transpired than he was by the original creation itself, before the destructiveness of death and before it being creatively and redemptively restored and reversed, such that there's such a value in the new creation for God now. I want us to take three readings, and that analogy I hope you'll bear in mind as linking between the readings that we're going to enjoy. But there's also something else in the readings that I want you to spot for yourselves. There's one little phrase that is there in them all, essentially the same in them all. We're coming to Paul's writings, and it's one of the Apostle Paul's idiosyncrasies. And the Holy Spirit, accommodating to the style of the human writer, preserves that little idiosyncrasy and it's there in Scripture for us to detect. So, shall we go first, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Look out for the little phrase that Paul uses in each of these three readings. And he tends to use it as he arrives at a crescendo in some great thought that he's communicating from God. 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 3 to 5. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And let's come now down to verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. And now down to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Shall we come now to Ephesians chapter 1? 
the second section of our text for today. Ephesians 1, and we'll begin at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, so that by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore prepared so that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, or in whom each building, fitly framed together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And our final reading, please, is in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Three verse one. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word. If we come back to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll look at our three sections of our text in the sequence that we read them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again. In those early verses that we read together, verses 3 to 5, there's a four-part summary of the gospel. And it's believed perhaps to be the earliest Christian creed containing the gospel. Four bullet points that declare the gospel of God through Jesus Christ. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. One, that Christ died for our sins. Two, that he was buried. Three, that he was raised on the third day. And four, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. A four-part early 
Christian creed, perhaps the earliest, and it delineates the good news of Jesus Christ, of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. We commonly encounter objections when we preach the gospel today, don't we? People would say to us, where is God when life hurts? This God that you believe in, that you're telling us about, where is He when life hurts? When such and such atrocities happen in our world, how can there also be, as you claim, a God who's all-loving and all-powerful if these things happen in His world? These are, of course, premature judgments that people are making. Because God's sovereignty will be fully seen by all when humans no longer die. That's the ending of the gospel that we're brought to in this magnificent treatment in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because Paul is preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the defective part of local gospel preaching at this time in Corinth, it would seem. You might wonder when you look at this, when you come to verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, why does it speak about unless you believed in vain? How could that happen? I believe that's unpacked in verses 12 to 14, which ends with the same expression about believing possibly in vain. Faith can only be a vain thing if it's in a thing preached that is defective about resurrection truth. You see, people there were perhaps entering into the same error of Hymenaeus and Philetus in Ephesus, and they were wrong about the teaching of resurrection. And Paul says to them, you've got to believe that everyone is going to be raised. Because if the dead are not raised, then neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's an empty thing. And if our preaching is a vain, empty thing, then your faith is a vain, empty thing. This is logic on fire by the Apostle Paul in his preaching of God's Word, preaching of the Gospel. And so he's declaring the Gospel here, initially in its four parts. And then he makes the point very plainly, doesn't he, that it was by man that death came into our world. And it's by man that death exits from our world. The history of our world is the history of two Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam, through his sin and disobedience, brought death into God's creation. Death came by man. And in the purposes of God, in creatively and redemptively reversing the disaster that had befallen the original creation, God sent His Son as man. And by man, death is eradicated. The good news of the gospel is death is abolished. But we don't see that as yet. I was listening on the car radio to a snippet of a debate between, I believe, Professor Michael Ruse and Professor John Lennox, and it centered on the resurrection of Christ and its historicity 
and reality. And John Lennox said, the problem of physical death has been solved historically. Of course it has, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul presents the gospel here as ending with either you believe in an empty tomb or else you have an empty faith. And so the sovereignty of God will be fully seen when humans no longer die. This section is about declaring God's sovereignty. Did you pick up, by the way, on that little expression that repeats in the three sections of our text? It is, of course, the words all in all. It seems to be one of Paul's idiosyncrasies. He liked to use that little expression. And the Holy Spirit supervised his choice of those words, and they're here in holy writ. God will ultimately be seen to be all in all through the gospel in its fullness and finality when humans no longer die, when all things hold God's sway and God's sovereignty will be declared. So this section, the first section of our text, as it promotes the expression that God may be all in all, is one that declares God's sovereignty. And it's the gospel that fully and finally declares the sovereignty of God when humans no longer die. And our faith in Christ abolishes all ruling adversarial powers. Our faith in Christ abolishes all enemies, including death, which is the thing that shreds us emotionally. But it's all under God's sovereignty. And when the gospel has fully run its course, God will be seen to be all in all, and humans will no longer die. Let's look at our next text, the next section of it. Come to Ephesians. There's a link, I believe, between the first three chapters of Ephesians, certainly between chapter 1 and then chapters 2 and 3. We read in chapter 1 Paul's prayer in verses 17 and 18 and 19. He was praying that the eyes of the hearts of his hearers here in Ephesus might be enlightened, might be opened, that they might see and understand three things. The hope of God's calling, the riches of the glory of God's inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of God's power. And I want us to see that just like a preacher might have an opening prayer and he prays that his audience will understand what he's going to be teaching them. Paul has here given us the three sections of chapters 2 and 3. So if we say, Paul, what is the hope of God's calling? What is the riches of the glory of God's inheritance? What is the surpassing greatness of God's power? He would say, just wait, I'm going to deal with them in chapters 2 and 3 in that order. And so they're defined. 
And then he concludes chapter 1. And he uses his little expression again. He says, He put all things in subjection under his feet. That's God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. And gave Christ as head over all things to the church. The church which is his body. All born again believers from Acts chapter 2 until the time of the Lord's return. And he describes that church as the fullness of him who fills all in all. The theme, the context here is about authority. This is Christ filling all things in all ways with his authority. I believe the Greeks, if they were describing this glass of water, they would say the glass is the fullness of the water. It's the way they use the language. Because the water fills the glass. Therefore, the glass is the fullness of the water. And the church, the body, is the fullness of Christ. Because Christ fills the church with his authority. And as the church is subject to Christ now, all things will one day be subject to Christ. He will fill all things in all ways in God's time. And so Paul prayed that they would discern the hope of God's calling, the riches and the glory of God's inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of God's power. I know I'm speaking to some heavy hearts, and you may be thinking in terms of disappointment, poverty, dullness, weakness, but I want us instead to focus where Paul, by the Spirit, draws our attention. He draws our attention to hope, to riches, to glory, and to power. And they're really close to home, as we'll see what's being referred to by these expressions. Let's take, first of all, the hope of God's calling. I suggest to you that takes us to the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Remember, he's the preacher. The first thing he's praying that they'll come to appreciate is the hope of God's calling. Therefore, at the beginning of chapter 2, that's what he's dealing with for the first 10 verses. God has called us through the gospel to Christ. And what a calling that is. We were dead in our trespasses. But God, being rich in love and mercy, when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. We are his workmanship. God's workmanship. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's what God is hoping for when he called us to his son through the gospel. God's hope, God's purpose in our salvation is that we should live for him and accomplish the plans that he had made for us before the foundation of the world. God's got a purpose in each of our lives and this is the hope of God's calling. 
If it was the hope of our calling, it would be the return of Christ, wouldn't it? That's what we're hoping for. But what's God hoping for? God is looking at our lives now, and His hope, His purpose is that we should walk in the way that he intended. We should fulfill the works that he has planned for each one of us to accomplish. The word here for workmanship is poema. The New Living Translation of the Bible translates it as masterpiece. Some, I think, go too far, and they say it's the word that we get poetry from. Therefore, we are God's poetry. But that's reverse engineering things, isn't it? You can't define a Greek word by what we understand from it 2,000 years later. But I think masterpiece is fair enough because this is God's work. We are God's workmanship. And anything that God does and makes has to be a masterpiece. So we'll accept the NLT, God's masterpiece. You know, this takes us back to the analogy we were made in the image of God, but that image was marred through the fall when sin entered into the human race. The image of God in humanity was marred, but God in His magnificent grace has turned the situation around, and through Christ, through faith in Christ, through the gospel, we are His masterpieces. God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Tim Keller says, God is the artist, and you are the artwork. God is the painter, you are the canvas. God is the sculptor, you are the marble. Perhaps in more biblical parlance, God is the potter, and we are all the clay. It's an expression of God's artistry that's seen in us. Maybe we should move on to thinking about the riches and the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. What is that talking about? Well, Christ died on the cross to bring us from being excluded strangers to being God's treasured possession in churches of God. I believe that's where the end of this chapter brings us to. It brings us to serving together as brothers and sisters in churches of God, where we can enjoy the wonder of walking with God and living in God's living quarters here in this world. Because the chapter ends with us being built together upon Christ. If the first 10 verses were about being created in Christ, then to the end of chapter 2, it's about us being built together upon Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. This is a building analogy. This is God's house. It's His habitation in the Spirit on this earth. You know, some people say that this is a body letter. The letter to the Ephesians, it's a body letter. It's all about the church, the body. Why are you bringing churches of God into it? Well, there's no conflict there, of course. 
There are two views of the church, the body, in the letter to the Ephesians. There's the ultimate view of the church, the body of Christ. And you get that in chapter 5. It's a glorious thing, without spot or blemish or any such thing. That's the ultimate view of the body of Christ. But there's also the here and now view of the body of Christ. And that's where we come to at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. The here and now view of the body of Christ. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul said to the church of God in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9? He says to them, you are God's workers, God's field, God's tilled land. And then he comes into chapter 9 and he says, and you are body of Christ. The local church of God in character was body of Christ. And so churches of God on earth are to reflect the truth of the body of Christ. That's why we strive to be united because only united churches rather than independent autonomous churches can reflect the union, the mystical union of the body of Christ. And so in God's design, ideally, his body is seen on earth, displayed in local churches of God. And so here is God's riches and glorious inheritance, God's treasured possession. We've been brought from being excluded strangers outside of the covenants and promises in the Old Testament with all its exclusiveness, exclusively for Israel. And we were outside of that. But God in Christ through the cross has brought us near to himself, so near, that now we are fellow citizens with all the saints and of the household of God and built upon the chief cornerstone to be that habitation for God in the Spirit. And I really believe here it's each building fitly framed together. You can check it with scholars and with New Testament theological dictionaries, and they'll attest to the, the possibility, at least, of that translation. And I believe it's not commonly given as a translation because people don't generally understand the distinction between the church, the body, and the churches of God the latter being the ideal display in God's design on earth of that universal church, the here and now view of the body of Christ. And that's what God has brought us to, from being excluded to being his treasured possession, built together upon the cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. And then we come to chapter 3, and we've still got left to deal with in that prayer that Paul prayed in chapter 1, 17, 18, 19, that we might come to know the exceeding greatness or surpassing greatness of God's power. We find that in chapter 3. And Paul comes to it after verse 14. And he's speaking about the Spirit empowering us through Christ to grow to full maturity in Christ's love. I remember one man sharing an illustration of this. He spoke about two friends of his who were foster parents. And at one point they fostered children, 18-month-old twins, I think they were. And they had been in nine previous foster homes. And 
the Christian couple put them to bed the first night, and then they hovered by the bedroom door after putting the light out, expecting the children to cry and them to go in and comfort them in a new and strange environment, but there was silence. They waited. Still there was silence. So they were puzzled and they went into the room and they found the children were not asleep, but they were sobbing silently into their pillows. And they discovered when they checked out the history that those children had been beaten and abused in all the previous foster homes. They didn't dare to cry aloud in case they would be beaten for it. They had never experienced love in any family they had been fostered into. And when those children at that point had been tested, they were way outside, irretrievably outside the range of emotional and intellectual maturity that should have been appropriate for their age group. But that couple loved them as if their own parents for two years. They let them experience love. And then the children were tested again at the end of that period. And they were found to be well within the normal range of emotional and intellectual development. The difference that experiencing and appreciating being loved really makes. It helps people to mature. And that's what Paul's applying here in a spiritual setting. His prayer was that Christians would be strengthened by God's power through His Spirit in our inner being, that we might come to appreciate in an experiential way the love of Christ, its length and breadth and height and depth, and to know that love that surpasses knowledge. We can never get to the end of it. But to have a greater experiential appreciation of it brings us to maturity in Christ. To be filled unto all the fullness of God. It's a description of maturity. Compare it with what you find halfway through chapter 4. A similar expression. So empowered that we might appreciate the love of Christ. That we might become the person God wants us to be. So in other words, this section is about being created in Christ. Built together upon Christ. And spirit empowered through Christ. And the summary of it all is that through subjection to Christ, whose authority fills all things in all ways, being subject to him brings about the abolition of all hindrances to our Christian growth and maturity, whether in our personal terms or in corporate terms. Subjection to his authority abolishes all hindrances to growth. And finally, let's come to Corinthians briefly. Corinthians chapter 3. Again, we're tracking this all in all. First Corinthians 15, that God may be all in all. And then in Ephesians, Christ filling all things in all ways. And now in Colossians 3, verse 11, Christ is all in all. I think the 17 verses that Colossians chapter 3 begins with are wonderful verses. And if we could memorize them, and if we could put them into practice in our lives, what a difference it would make in our lives. There's a real transformative power in these words, because it's a tutorial, really, about how we can be transformed by concentrating on our union with Christ. 
we are united with Christ through faith. The definition of a Christian here is someone who's died with Christ. Verse 3, you have died. That's the definition of every Christian. Every true Christian is someone who's died with Christ. So the context here is this life-changing effect of setting our mind upon the reality of our union with Christ. We've died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ. Even now, from this world, we're hidden in God with Christ. And one day we'll be glorified with Christ. It's all about our being with Christ, our union with Him. How can we turn this theology into our experience? Well, we're urged to do four things here, aren't we? To let ourselves be clothed with Christ's virtues. And they're listed. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love. These are the virtues of Christ. We are to be clothed with them. And then we are to allow ourselves to be ruled by his peace. Clothed with his virtues, ruled by his peace. And then we're to let ourselves be indwelt by his word. Clothed with his virtues, ruled by his peace, indwelt with his word, and then to let him be glorified in all that we do. So our third reference to the auction at Sotheby's. Remember, something that didn't seem to be in the original frame was ultimately used creatively, destruction turned around creatively to produce a masterpiece that was of all surpassing value, greater value than the original, greater value than before. And if we are able to clothe ourselves with these virtues, to be ruled by Christ's peace, indwelt by Christ's word, let him be glorified in all we do, we can allow the surpassing value of Christ to be seen in our lives for God's glory. Just a closing illustration about a, a night when the Philadelphia Philharmonic Orchestra were playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and Toscanini was conducting. And it was one of those nights when they appeared to all play flawlessly. And it was such a tremendous collective performance that at the end of it, the audience arose en masse in a, a standing ovation that went on and on and on. And Toscanini and the others may have taken their bows, and still the ovation went on and on and on. And so Toscanini turned to his orchestra, and he said to them, ladies and gentlemen, you are nothing. And we weren't shocked or fazed by that, because that was his usual way of trying to incite them to greater heights of perfection. So they were used to that. But what he said next did shock them. He said, you are nothing, and I am nothing, but Beethoven is everything. And we come to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. And all this transpires that Christ 
may be all in all. Christ is everything. Christ is all in all. Our union with Christ abolishes all distinctions. No Jew, no Gentile, no circumcision, no uncircumcision, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, nor free. All distinctions are abolished in Christ as to our destiny. And the surpassing value is for God. Paul writes, doesn't he, in Philippians chapter 3, about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Christ is everything. He's all in all. The surpassing value of knowing Christ. And so my time is gone. And I just want to try to very briefly recap where we've been in the three sections of our text. We first of all looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that God may be all in all. And that's when through the gospel, finally and fully, God's sovereignty is declared when humans no longer die. And our faith in Christ abolishes all enemies. And then we came to Ephesians 1 to 3. And we thought about Christ with his authority filling all things in all ways. And we thought about our subjection to Christ, abolishing all hindrances to our full-grown maturity, personally and corporately. And now we've come to Colossians chapter 3, that Christ may be all in all. It's about God developing our Christian identity. And our union with Christ abolishes all distinctions as to our destiny. And so we've been thinking about Christ eradicating death. We've been thinking about Christ supporting his people. We've been thinking about Christ transforming us into his likeness. My brothers and sisters, you'll forgive me for saying you are nothing. Because I'll equally say, I am nothing, but Christ is everything. He's all in all.